one of the wonderful parts about coming to church and celebrating at banquets and so forth this time of year are singing the, the hymns that are also known as carols, Christmas carols. And, uh, you know, we'll get together and you can know what kind of crowd you're in, whether they, they prefer Silent Night or Here Comes Santa Claus. You know, there's lots of songs of the season. But the, 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 the Christmas carols truly are retellings of the good news of Christmas, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, undoubtedly during this Christmas season, at least once, and uh, with different services, I'll be in at St. Mary's and so forth, I'm going to be able to sing that wonderful Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, at least once. Hopefully more, because the reality is, I love all the Christmas carols, but this is a particular favorite of mine. And the reason, I, I, I never really understood it until I examined it more closely. I've always loved the fact that in a wonderful carol, in a musical way, it tells the entire good news of the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of the Christmas carols tell part of the story, especially as they recount the events of the nativity. Either the wise men, O come, O come, Emmanuel, the coming of the wise men, traveling from afar. Uh, There's many, many wonderful stories. The silent night, we think of the manger scene. We think of the events surrounding the night of Jesus' birth. We get little glimpses into the Christmas story. Uh, The angels singing to shepherds and so forth. But hark the herald angels sing... It's fascinating. Now, this isn't one of those, those, those hymn sermons like we had earlier in the fall season, but it's sort of like that because I found it, not only was this, this hymn interesting to me because it goes so far beyond all other Christmas carols which tell us the events of the nativity, and this tells us the meaning of Jesus' birth in its fullness, that he came to be our Savior. He came to bring sinners to God. And the reason is how it came into being, who was involved in the composition of it. You see three individuals, very indiv- different individuals, two of them who know, knew one another. Charles Wesley, of course, was the brother of the famed John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement. These men who became some of the greatest leaders in their day, part of what we know as the Great Awakening, especially in the English-speaking world, as through open-air meetings and preaching, tens of thousands of people gave their hearts to Christ for the first time, and many more rededicated their lives to Christ. Well, as John was preaching these sermons, they needed, they needed hymns to go along with it. And God had gifted John Wesley's brother Charles with an amazing gift. He wrote not hundreds, but thousands of hymns. Now, he didn't write music. He wasn't a musician. He wrote the words for the hymns. And so the words to the hymn that we sing now, the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that was Charles Wesley, mostly. The fact is, a friend of Wesley's was a man named George Whitfield. It looks like it's spelled Whitefield, but he pronounced it Whitfield. And he not only was another preacher of the Great Awakening, but Whitfield especially was a gifted speaker. And God took him primarily from England to North America to preach the good news to crowds of thousands. Now, Whitfield took the song 
which was written for a Christmas Day service. He took the song that Charles Wesley wrote and he rewrote it. He altered it. Some of the language was a little archaic. He made it more understandable. For instance, the hymn takes its name from the first line. Hark, the herald angels sing. That's not what Charles Wesley wrote. In fact, he used an old archaic term for the heavens and the skies, and that term was welkin, W-E-L-K-I-N. How many of you would know what a welkin was if, uh, if you heard it today? Well, the first line of the song used to be, Hark how all the welkin rings. Hark how all the welkin rings. Glory to the newborn king. It works, but... How much better if we placed it in the message of the angels? Hark, the herald angels sing. Much better. Well, you'd think that Charles Wesley would celebrate that change. In fact, it annoyed him. It's kind of comical. You read in his diary how he thought that whoever sang that, if that was in their hymn book, that somewhere in the hymn book they should put the original line that he wrote because he preferred that line. Well, that's the two great preachers and, and teachers wrote the incredible theological words. In fact, reading about this hymn and studying it, I came across this description of it. It says, This hymn by Charles Wesley was written within a year of Wesley's conversion. Thus, as Albert Bailey writes, the inspiration of his newly made contact with God was still fresh. Rather than simply tell the nativity story, which as I mentioned is what most carols do, Wesley pours theological truths into this text. The first verse tells the story of the angels proclaiming Christ's birth. The second and third verse go on to make it very clear why the angels sang. Simply by describing Christ, Wesley tells us the entire gospel story. We are told of Christ's nature, his birth, incarnation, his ministry, and his saving purpose. That's a lot in a single Christmas carol. But the truth is, Wesley didn't have music to his carol. They sort of chanted the carols together. You didn't have to know the song. As long as you had the words in your little hymn book, you could chant them together to some basic tunes. Well, where does the beautiful music come from? The guy in the middle, the famous composer, the Polish prince, Felix Mendelssohn. He wasn't a prince, but that was a nickname of him. Felix Mendelssohn, as you can almost tell from his name, and his middle names were Abraham and Jacob. He had names like that. Jewish family, Jewish background. But before Mendelssohn's birth, the family had converted to Christianity and he was a baptized believer, Felix Mendelssohn. And yet, though he wrote much music for church work, the tune to Hark the Herald Angels Sing was not one of those pieces of music. In fact, when Mendelssohn wrote that tune, he said of it, this is one tune that will never have sacred words set to it. He says it's too rollicking, it's, it's more for a festival or the march of some soldiers or something. But, though he wrote that tune over a hundred years after Wesley and Whitfield, the original song was composed in 1739, his song was written for something very different. It was written for a festival in Leipzig, Germany, celebrating 
Gutenberg and the invention of the printing press. You can't make this stuff up. So to celebrate the printing press, he wrote this song as an anthem for that festival. Somebody heard it, and how they did it, God led them to put the words to Wesley and Whitfield's Christmas song to that tune. And that's the rest of the story. Now, (laughs) the reason I go the long way to tell you that little bit of a thing is that the theology in that hymn, I think, is very suitable for an Advent Sunday in which we also recognize the death and resurrection of Jesus, his sacrifice for us as he invites us to come to the Lord's table, the communion table. The one line from the hymn is what I'm going to focus on. Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. It rhymes, it's beautiful words, but it's so meaningful to what we do today and what we celebrate during the Christmas season. Scripture that this in part is based on, of course, is the prophetic passage speaking of the birth of the Messiah found all the way back in Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. The coming Messiah to us, A child is born. And one of the wonderful titles of the Messiah given in this passage showing that it wasn't a mere man, not only mighty God, everlasting Father, speaking of his divinity, but the beautiful title, the Prince of Peace, having the authority over peace. Now, before we... Because we're going to mention peace a number of times. In the New Testament, peace, based on the Greek word, irene, Now, that's where you get the name Irene. A lady with the name Irene, that is the Greek word for peace. Now, Greek word for peace means harmonious relationship. We have peace with God. We are in step with God. We are in harmony with God. We have peace with God. Harmonious relationships. But in the Old Testament, you know the the word for peace in Hebrew, shalom. There, it means wholeness, soundness, completeness, made perfect. It can be just as easily translated salvation, to be saved. And so when we talk about the Prince of Peace, not only does he give us peace with God, but salvation. And that is what's reflected not only in this song, but throughout the story of Christmas, the good news of the gospel. Our Prince of Peace, I've called the message the peacemaker, because Jesus is the one who brings us peace with God. Now, to hearken back, <laughs> hearken, <laughs> to refer back to the song, the Christmas carol, the first line is, peace on earth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth are the next words. And you hear a lot about that. That's one of those slogans for Christmas. You sometimes see it up in lights on top of buildings and so forth. Peace on earth. And everybody says, isn't it a shame that we don't, 
We don't stop fighting just for a little while because Christmas should be all about peace on earth. In fact, some of you have already been to the Rosebud play that's called uh, All is Quiet, the story of the Christmas truce of 1914. True story from World War I, where for one night, Christmas Eve, the guns fell silent and the soldiers got out of the trenches and met to celebrate Christmas together. Well, what a wonderful picture of peace on earth. And yet, knowing that peace means harmonious relationship with God as well as salvation, it's kind of misleading, isn't it? Because Christmas doesn't automatically bring peace on earth. The Prince of Peace does not automatically have peace. In fact, Jesus said that his life in ministry was going to be not a time of peace, but a time of division and upheaval and people, things being overturned and so forth. But we get that straight out of Scripture. The angels in Luke chapter 2, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Well, that's a very important distinction the angels made. Peace is not automatically conferred. Suddenly, the earth was not peaceful. This was the time of the Romans. This is soon Herod would slaughter the innocents of Bethlehem. There was no peace, and there's no peace today. We have wars and rumors of wars. We have upheavals. In the last century, more people have died in violence and at the hands of war than all the centuries put together. In the 20th century... Over 100 million people died in wars. Families are broken. There's no peace in the home. Oh, we're thankful in those times there are, but we see this is not a peaceful globe. It's not peace on earth that we experience today. And as I mentioned earlier, Jesus says peace. He says, I didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring salvation. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus tries to dissuade us of that. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And by that he means we have to choose. We have to cut ourselves off from our sinful nature. We have to turn our backs on sin and self. And he says in doing that, there's going to be division. There's going to be a sword in your family. Father against son, brother against sister. We're going to be divided over Jesus. He's the rock that causes men to stumble but he's also the only one where we can truly find peace. So peace may not be on earth, but understand this, peace is definitely on offer. Jesus has offered peace through him. It's there for the taking. We simply have to trust. We simply have to put our faith in him. And his peace becomes ours as Jesus says in John chapter 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The peace is there. The peace of salvation. The peace with God. The peace of God that can rule our hearts and our minds. It's there. Not in the world but offered to the world, to those on whom God's favor rests. That salvation, the shalom that brings peace, is made so clear in Romans chapter 5, the first two verses. 
Therefore, Paul writes, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Peace with God. Sins forgiven. They've been taken away. And how has that sin problem been taken away? Why is peace now available with us, to us? Well, the old Christmas carol continues. Peace on earth and mercy mild. Mercy mild. As a kid, that always kind of baffled me. Mild mercy. Because to me, mild... It's not a word we use very often. In Canada, we talk about mild weather because we can have such harsh weather. It's the opposite of harsh. As a child, I saw soap always was described as mild and easy on your skin and hands. And so I'm thinking mild, mercy, soft on our hands. I wasn't quite sure. I wasn't tracking with it. The mercy obviously spoken of is anything but easy because the mercy took seriously your sin, and mine. The mercy spoken of can also be translated as compassion. Remember when Jesus sat in the marketplace and he saw the people doing their business, running here and there? He says, they're so busy. They're like a child looking for, for, for somebody to give meaning to them. He says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. His heart hurt for them. He had compassion. And that's the essence of mercy to have pity and compassion, and not just to feel bad for somebody, but true mercy undertakes to relieve the suffering of others. And in a world suffering from sin and death, for the wages of sin is death, and we all stood condemned, true mercy was shown by Jesus taking that suffering himself. Mercy mild. Oh, it's made so clear in Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant. Speaking of Jesus' mercy and the depths of it, we read, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. So beautifully put. Remember the punishment that brought us peace. The shalom, the wholeness means salvation. Our salvation was won by Jesus' wounds. He took the punishment for sin. Our punishment. The wages of sin was death. And as we remember at the communion table, Jesus gave his body freely to the cross. And he shed his blood for us. The mercy was rooted, the compassion was rooted in the love of God. John puts it so beautifully. When it speaks of love, we often turn to John, the gospel, or the letters of John. John says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us so, we also ought to love one another. We who have received love need to share it with others, to pass it on. And friends, what's more appropriate and easier to share the story of Christmas, our story of Jesus, rather, than Christmas time? He is the essence of Christmas. You know, we can 
bring him up in conversations. What are you doing for Christmas? Do you do a church service or a Christmas Eve service as part of that? Here's what we do. This is, you know, there's just so many ways to bring Jesus into the conversation because the story of Christmas is the good news of the gospel. Peace on earth and mercy mild. And that mercy was paid for by Jesus on the cross. And why did he do it? To finish that line, peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Jesus brought those who were far and lost in a distant country like the prodigal son. Jesus brings us home. He reconciles us to a holy God. We can't come into God's presence. We don't deserve it. It's all of grace. It's all a gift. God and sinners reconciled. Bringing them back together. The relationship, the life-giving relationship which had been sundered by our sin, Jesus becomes the bridge. He brings us back to God. Once again, in Romans chapter 5, Paul puts it so well. Down in verse 10, Paul writes, For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall shall we be saved through his life? And Paul continues on, not only that, but now we get to point people to reconciliation. He says in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, that you who have been reconciled to God, you now have the job, the privilege, the appointment to be ambassadors. You say, well, why am I a Christian? You're an ambassador. You have been reconciled to God through Jesus. You implore others. That's how the NIV translates it. Other translations say, we beg others to be reconciled. It's the only salvation possible. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, all this, he's been speaking of salvation, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our job. Through loving actions and words, In a life that backs it up, we're ambassadors. We're representatives of Jesus. And on his behalf, not our own, on his behalf, we share the good news. and say, there's a God who loves you. He loved you enough to give his son to come into this world, a world that though he created, a world that rejected him, a world that he loved, he fed them, he healed them, and in return we nailed him to a cross. But though he was sinless, he died not for any sin he committed because he committed none. He died for your sin and mine. And that through trusting in him, putting your faith in him alone, you are saved, reconciled, brought home to God. Ambassadors, Christmas is a wonderful time, friends, to share that good news 
as ambassadors. And now as we come to the end of the service, we're going to share together at the Lord's table as the Lord himself invites us. We call it the Lord's table because it is his. He is the host and we are invited. As often as we do it, he says, remember his body and his blood shed. Let's pray and prepare our hearts to meet the Lord at the communion table. And as we do that, I'll ask the servers to join me at the front. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the good news of Christmas time. We thank you for the incarnation. Lord, no human mind could have thought of the story of salvation, that the creator of heaven and earth would enter into creation as a creature. It's as if a painter of a beautiful painting enters into it and becomes part of it. And yet, Lord, for a season... Jesus sojourned with us. As John says, in his body, he pitched his tent among us and lived among us. Lord, he lived a sinless life. And when he went to the cross, he was held there not by nails, but by his love for us. And Lord, we recognize that today. We remember his sacrifice for us. And in doing that, Lord, we come back to basics. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Lord, may this as the foundation of our life and our faith be the good news that we share by all that we say and all that we do. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the Lord's Supper, says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'll call upon Vern to give thanks for the bread, which reminds us of the body of Jesus.
The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had broken it, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup. And I'll ask Marlon to give thanks for the cup, which reminds us of the shed blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent us a Savior and that he was willing to obey you to take our uh, sins to the cross. So as we take this cup, Father, we pray that we will be reminded uh, of that great sacrifice that he made for each one of us. Amen. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup. Giving thanks, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Friends, let's stand together and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Advent season. Lord, may it not only be Christmas around the community with bright lights, with gifts. But Lord, may it be the Advent season in our hearts as we share the good news of the gospel, peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Lord, we thank you for the price Jesus paid for our reconciliation to bring us home to a Father who loves us. May we share that good news as we leave this place of worship and go to school, to home, to work, to our places of ministry, our mission field, as ambassadors of Jesus. We pray all of this in his precious name. Amen.